What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Tomorrow, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tomorrow, only on Disney+. Plus. This episode is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity's 10 Days, or whatever of Kwanzaa. You give Cards Against Humanity $15, and they'll send you 10 mystery gifts for the 10 days, or... Whatever of Kwanzaa, space is limited to the first 250,000 people who sign up at HolidayBullshit.com. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santopadre. Today, we'll be joined by a man who's made over 400 films as a producer and a director, a man who helped jumpstart the careers of, are you ready for this? Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Ron Howard, Peter Bogdanovich, Jonathan Demme, Joe Dante, James Cameron, Robert Town, Jack Nicholson, Peter Fonda, Charles Bronson, Sandra Bullock, and Robert De Niro. Ladies and gentlemen, the king of the B-movies, Roger Corman. Zero, spelled X-E-R-O, is the online accounting software and platform for your small business. With Zero, it doesn't matter if your small business is brick and mortar or online. That's because Zero was born in the cloud and built in the cloud. This means that you can manage your accounting anytime, anywhere, from your Mac, PC, iOS, or Android device. Sign up for a free 30-day trial at Zero.com slash podcast to manage your invoicing and get paid faster, get an instant view of your cash flow, track your expenses on the go, and manage all of your financial reports. You can even collaborate with your accountant or bookkeeper in real time whenever you like. Zero seamlessly integrates with over 350 best-in-class business tools to process mobile payments, manage payroll, run your back office, and much, much more. It's no wonder over 370,000 customers in more than 180 countries use Zero. 
And you can too. So sign up for a free 30-day trial at zero.com slash podcasts. That's zero, X-E-R-O dot com slash podcasts. And not only that, Zero randomly selects five people a month who have signed up to receive a mystery box of goodies, Zero Plus, from a company that already swears by Zero. Zero beautiful accounting software. Okay, if you like low-budget B-movies about outlaw biker gangs, giant sea serpents, man-eating plants, women in prison, teenage cavemen, loads of violence, and hot girls in skimpy clothing or no clothing at all. And if you don't like that, I don't want to know you. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome genuine Hollywood legend, the one, the only, Roger Corman. Well, that was a pretty subtle introduction. I hope uh, uh, I can uh, keep up with that uh, level of intellectualism. (laughs) We're all about intellectualism, Roger. (laughs) Now, you have uh, introduced some of the biggest names. And, you know, if, if someone doesn't know who you are, and I'd be ashamed if they didn't, you have introduced uh, to show business Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Ron Howard, Peter Bogdanovich, Jonathan Demi, Joe Dante, uh, James Cameron, Robert Town, Robert, uh, Jack Nicholson, Peter Fonder, Bruce Dern, Dennis Hopper, Talia Shire, Sandra Bullock, and Robert De Niro. One or two others, but I think we'll settle for those for the moment. <laughs> now, how did you first get into um, in movie making? Well, it started when I, I was an engineering student at Stanford, and I was writing for the Stanford Daily, and I found out the critics for the Daily got free passes to all the theaters in Palo Alto. So I thought, I like to see pictures for not, not paying, and so I wrote a couple of sample reviews. They took me on as a critic, and then I started to really examine and analyze the films in order to write the reviews. And I essentially became hooked. I thought, uh, this is much more fascinating than I realized just watching films casually. And I decided to move from engineering to filmmaking. And you were, you were reading scripts at one point. Yes, I was a story analyst at 20th Century Fox, which is a, a sort of overblown way of just saying a reader. And, and one, one movie that you helped uh, get made was The Gunfighter, starring Gregory Peck. Yes. And, and so what happened to you there that soured you on that job? Well, what happened, uh, the story editor said, Roger, you, uh, you've knocked every project we've sent you to analyze. And I said, well, I'm the youngest guy in the department, and the reason I knock them is because they're no good. You send me all the bad stuff. Send me something good, and I'll praise it. And they sent me a script called The Big Gun, which was a very good Western, and I thought, 
of this could fit because I knew they had a commitment uh, with Gregory Peck, and they were looking for a Western for him. So I did an editorial job of a little bit of rewriting and one thing or another, and uh, somebody else uh, got a bonus for my work. So I quit and uh, I, and went to Europe on the GI Bill to get away from Hollywood, and frankly, just to, to go to Europe and uh, look around. Now, is that Gregory Peck movie the one where the one of the biggest controversies with the studio was that he wore a mustache in it? Yes. Uh, they didn't want him. They wanted him to be clean-shaven. But uh, if you look at pictures uh, of the time, you see that... Uh, Probably the majority of men wore mustaches, and uh, I've forgotten who were the producer and director, but both the producer and the director and uh, Peck all felt he should wear a mustache, and the studio executives finally said, okay, uh, they didn't want to make an issue of it. And I think it was very good because it uh, lent a sense of realism, uh, which was lacking, in, as we know, in some films. <laughs> And so, Roger, at that point, you're disenchanted with the, with the movie business and your experience in it. Get us from there, from walking away from Fox to making your own films. Well, when I came back, I, I went briefly to Oxford on the GI Bill, and then I came back, and I got a job as a literary agent. And I wanted to write, so in my spare time, I was writing, and I wrote a script, uh, put a different name on it, and as a literary agent, sold my own script. And uh, I, of course, I explained what happened to the head of the of the a literary agency and paid him his 10% commission. And he laughed. He said, okay, I understand. And uh, I then said to the producer of the film, uh, as part of the deal, uh, I, w I will work for nothing for you as an assistant, but I would like to get an associate producer credit. And again, he figured, why not? Uh, he had somebody um, unpaid working on the picture, but credits are very important in Hollywood. So I knew that at the end of this, I, I had officially had on the screen a writer credit and a producer credit. And I took the money from the sale of the script, raised a little bit of money from various friends of mine, a grand total of $12,000, and then I had some deferments. And I made the film, a uh, film I called It Stocked the Ocean Floor for $12,000, plus, uh, plus some deferments, which built it up to $27,000. And uh, I sold it to um, a little distribution company. They thought my title was too arty, and they changed the title to Monster from the Ocean Floor, and uh, that launched my career. The film was uh, was successful. I produced one more film, uh, The Fast and the Furious, a picture about sports car racing, and I did very well with that title because the picture was uh, successful and I made money. And later on, a few years ago, Universal was looking for uh, a title, for a car racing picture they had starring Vin Diesel and Paul Walker, and they heard about my old title, The Fast and the Furious, so I sold them the title, so I scored twice. <laughs> now, now, I heard that on The Fast and the Furious, you bought up a bunch of used cars 
race them and, uh, you know, bang them up and then, you know, basically hose them off and return them. Well, I, everything is correct except hosing them off and returning them. I essentially, <laughs> I essentially wrecked them. Just what it amounted to. I sold them for junk. Great. Uh, Roger, you did. Do I have this correct that you did several jobs on Monster from the Ocean Floor? That you were the producer, the assistant director, the uh, the driver, and the grip, and you did a little bit of everything. I, I did everything, uh, including the truck driver. I drove the truck, and um, the um, representative from the Teamsters came out uh, to, see, to see the shoot. Of course, he wanted to have a Teamsters truck driver, and uh, he was talking to me. He said, who's the truck driver? And I said, I am. And he laughed, and he said, you're the first producer truck driver I've ever heard of. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll make you an honorary member of the Teamsters for this picture, because I know you don't have any money, but you have to have a Teamster on the next picture. And I said, that's a fair deal. And from then on in, uh, I was with the Teamsters. Now, I, I heard an interview with some people who worked on a few of your films where you would look at the script and take a pencil and scribble notes on it. And one of the notes was... Maybe, maybe able to use a bare breast shot. Um, for a little while, that was true. Not at the beginning. At <laughs> uh, <laughs> first, uh, you couldn't have nudity until I think around the late 1960s, when uh, the R the rating system with R ratings came in, and we had R rated a film made a number of R rated films that were successful, but that didn't really last that long. Um, they were successful because they were just R-rated. They were never anything more than that. We never did any X films or anything like that. They were successful because they were new, and then it sort of faded off, and uh, we haven't had an R-rated film or a film with nudity for a long time. I think what it amounts to is they get so much on the Internet, there's hardly any point in putting it in a film anymore. Roger, tell us about working for uh, for American International Pictures for AIP and how that started. Well, it started with my second picture. Uh, after Monster from the Ocean Floor, as I said, I made The Fast and the Furious, and I could see the trap for the producer. You put up your money, uh, you sent the picture out for distribution, and over maybe six months or a year, you got your money back and you could make another film. And I felt that this was a system that uh, really meant you were not working for a long uh, period of time. And I had offers from a number of the smaller distribution companies, and American International was just starting. And uh, they came to me, and they were, Jim Nicholson and Sam Markoff ran the company, and uh, they were very enthusiastic, and I liked them. And I said, here's what I'll do. I've got offers from established companies, but if you can do this, if you can raise enough money 
so that I'll give to you for distribution the fast and the furious, and you give me my negative cost back. You pay me back what I've got. I'll invest it in it, and then I'll ride with you from the, for the profits. But I'll have my money back, and um, let's make a three-picture deal. So I do that three times, and each time I get my money back as soon as I finish the picture, and then I gamble for the profits. And that started uh, American International and me, and uh, it turned out to be a very successful uh, formula for all of us. Now, I heard, and I hope this is true, uh, on one of your films, they were shooting outside, and it became evening, and they called back to you and said, we don't have enough lights. And you said, well, your cars have headlights, don't they? Yes, it actually it actually is true. And you know the funny thing was I had a very good crew, and because um, I, I I just met different people like them, and everybody was good. I would hire back, and over a period of uh, three or four films, I had a crew, including a couple of guys who were Academy Award winners. Uh, and when they were, didn't have anything to do on a big picture, they would work for me. I had an Academy Award cameraman saying, all right, pull the Buick up, put on the bright brights with the Buick, move the Oldsmobile over there just with the dim lights. <laughs> and he was a, an Academy Award lighting cameraman lighting a car with the headlights, uh, <laughs> lighting a picture with the headlights. That's great. <laughs> what, what, do, you, do you remember... Other things like that that you did uh, during your movies, like real money-saving special effects. Um, we we did all kinds of things. For instance, we never bothered with permits. You know, you you pay the, the city for the permit, and they want you to have a policeman out there. I have no idea why. Either they think they're going to protect you from being robbed, or they're going to protect the public from you attacking the public. But whatever, all of this is nonsense. We went out there without permits, without policemen or anything else, and just shot. And if somebody came by, which occasionally a policeman did, we said we were students uh, from UCLA Film School just <laughs> shooting a, a student film. <laughs> So, and, and didn't you give them directions that if the police did come or there was any tension, just run for it? Well, uh, it was something like that. Uh, actually, yes. Uh, <laughs> the, way you, the way you phrase it, yes. What I essentially said was just sort of fade into the crowd. You know, put the camera away <laughs> and get lost. But I, I think essentially run for it is a better way to describe it. <laughs> How many pictures did you make for, for AIP? I Roger. made a lot of films for them. I made probably, oh, at least around 40 films, I think. Maybe a little more than that. Including Jack Nicholson's debut film, The Crybaby Killer? Yeah, I made that one for Allied Artists. Oh, for Allied but Artists. Then, but then I did a number of films for AIP with Jack, including... Uh, uh, a picture called The Trip, which was about an LSD sure. experience that starred uh, uh, Peter Fonda, Bruce Dern, and uh, uh, Dennis Hopper. And Jack wrote the script for that. Jack was actually a very good writer. He could have had a career as a writer if uh, his career as an actor hadn't taken off. Now, here's what always strikes me when I watch Jack Nicholson in one of your early films 
is that here's Nicholson, a legend, internationally known film star. And when I watch him in those movies, those early movies, I think I want to take him aside and go, you know, you have no career in acting. Well, a lot of people felt that. He, at one time, I was almost his source of income. He had done four or five films for me, and other people weren't hiring him. And I never understood why, because he was clearly a good actor. Uh, and then, all of a sudden, it hit. He started working, and uh, he was playing uh, co-star roles in low-budget films and so forth. And Easy Rider was the film... Uh, which is sort of a follow-up to my picture, The Wild Angels, about a motorcycle gang. And again, it starred uh, our usual guys, uh, Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, and, uh, and Jack Nicholson. And uh, that's the picture that really made him a star. Is, is it true, speaking of Wild Angels, is it true that George Shakiris was cast, but, but he couldn't ride a bike, he couldn't ride a yeah. motorcycle, and that, it, that it, you went with Peter Fonda because he could ride? Yes, exactly. I did not. I didn't want to do what they did in all of these things. The uh, guy jumps on the motorcycle in the close shot, and then when you cut to the long shot, and the stunt driver drives a motorcycle away. I really wanted the picture to be as real as possible, and I wanted to be able to show the leading man or one of the other character actors get on the bike and actually drive the bike away for a few shots we did have stunt drivers but they were for sort of danger semi-dangerous shots everything else i insisted that all of the actors um be able to uh, ride a bike and how did you first meet jack nicholson I met him in an acting class. As I said, I uh, went to Stanford as an engineer, and I started as a writer, then produced two films, saw what the directors were doing, and thought, well, I can do that, and I started directing. And maybe the engineering background or something, I thought that I learned the technical aspects, working with the camera, editing, all of that end of directing, uh, that I felt I'd learned that fairly quickly, but I didn't really know enough about working with actors, so I enrolled in a method acting class in Hollywood, and Jack was in that class. And uh, he was clearly, as soon as I saw him work, I realized, uh, I think he was only 18 or 19 at the time, that it was clear that he was a, a very, very talented actor. Now, in The Beast with a Million Eyes... Yes. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I heard that they, they filmed it uh, and completed the movie... And everyone sort of liked it, but then they came to the realization that they didn't have a beast with a million eyes. That's pretty much correct. They had <laughs> we we had a beast with a million eyes, but one thing it didn't have a million eyes, and it wasn't much of a beast. Uh, and I did the picture for AIP, so that was the only picture on which I said, "Okay, you're supposed to give me a certain amount of money. Give me a couple of thousand dollars more, and I can uh, put in a better beast." So uh, the beast uh, never reached a million eyes, but at least uh, it reached uh, some sort of acceptability. Now, I heard at one point they tried taking an old tea kettle <laughs> and punching a bunch of holes in it and putting a light inside it. 
That was a myth. Somebody <laughs> said that. I've forgotten who said. You know, all kinds of stories build up, and very often the story is better than reality. <laughs> let, let me ask you, going back to the trip for a second, Roger, you, the, the film was about LSD, and, yeah. and you decided, uh, what, at, at a certain point, that you had to... Uh, you had to know your subject matter a little better? Exactly. Uh, um, really, I was a very conscientious director. I was working on uh, short money and short budgets, but I was trying to do the best I could. And I thought, uh, I can't direct a picture, uh, produce and direct a picture about LSD unless I take it. And uh, when pe I was sort of the straightest guy in a fairly wild crowd, so when people found out that I was going to take LSD, and uh, we went up to Big Sur because I'd heard you should go to a beautiful place to experience it, <laughs> we had a cavalcade of cars going up to Big Sur, and we actually had to schedule who would be taking LSD. It was like a film uh, schedule, and who would not, so there'd be somebody always uh, sort of straight to make certain somebody didn't do something uh, dangerous or harmful. Now, I, I heard a quote about you that was that Roger Corman could negotiate a film on a payphone, shoot it in the booth, and finance it with the money out of the change slot. <laughs> it's a great story. I wish it were true, but uh, it's a, it, you know, I, uh, what should I say? There is a, a realm of thought behind it that is somewhat similar to what I did. Um, obviously, I couldn't do that, but uh, but I, I kind of like that story. <laughs> <laughs> and I heard Jack Nicholson said, uh, occasionally, Roger Corman could accidentally make a good movie. <laughs> well, but I was never in it. <laughs> <laughs> actually, Jack was in a couple of good films. I was I was actually being treated rather well by the critics for making low-budget films. It really started with a picture. He talked about the people who started with me, an actor that uh, most of the young people um, the, that uh, they're watching this or listening to this, I wouldn't know. Charlie Bronson. Oh, I did a wow, picture sure. called Machine Gun Kelly, sure. where I shot in 10 days. And Charlie was his first lead. And the film was nicely reviewed and made money in the United States. But the French critics, the new wave critics in France, um, liked um, American genre films, and they gave it really great reviews, and the picture was a bigger success in Europe than it was in the United States, and Charlie went to first France and then Italy, and on the basis of Machine Gun Kelly, he became a European star uh, before he came back here. He was an international star based in Paris and Rome, and then eventually came back to Hollywood as a full-fledged uh, European star. And, and that's the movie that ends with, I think, a real-life quote from Machine yes. Gun Kelly. Yes, that's true. I had done some research about Kelly. Kelly was public enemy number one, and the FBI had him uh, surrounded 
and they expected him to fight to the finish. And instead, he threw down his gun, walked out of this cabin where they had him surrounded in the woods, and surrendered. And uh, the head of the FBI unit, whatever he was, said, Cowie, we uh, uh, didn't expect you to surrender. We thought you'd fight all the way. Why, didn't, why, did, why did you surrender? And he said, I knew you'd kill me if I fought. And I built the whole script around that, that Kelly was not as tough as people thought he was. And what was Bronson like to work with back then? Bronson was delightful to work with. His reputation is, and it's true, he is a very tough guy. He was a semi-pro boxer at one time, picking up a little money just in fight clubs and things like that. He really was tough, but uh, he was an intelligent and sensitive actor, and I think that's one of the reasons he became a star. It was clear when you saw him on the screen, you were looking at a genuinely tough guy, but he was a very sensitive actor, which went against type, and uh, that's what I think surprised people. And you worked with, um, well, I mean, in the, the Edgar Allan Poe movies, you worked with Boris Karloff, Peter Laurie, and Vincent Price. And Basil Rathbone. Yes. Yes. And Vincent, of course, was our major star. Vincent was the lead in each of the pictures. And again, I was very fortunate. Um, this was, this uh, the first of the Poe pictures was uh, The Fall of the House of Usher. I'd been making uh, 10-day pictures in black and white, and I convinced AIP. This on this one, um, they gave me. I convinced them to give me some more money, and I would shoot three days in color, uh, three day, three weeks in color. And I felt I was in the big time. I had for the first time three weeks, and I had some good sets built by a good art director, who's a friend of mine, Danny Haller. And I was very fortunate in that we had a good script from Dick Matheson. And uh, Vincent read the script, and although we didn't have enough money to pay his usual salary, we paid him most of his usual salary and a percentage of the profits. And the film did well, and we went on to make a number of full pictures. Now, I heard Peter Laurie at that point didn't take any of it seriously and was making up his own dialogue as he went along. He took it seriously, but he'd been trained in the Stanislavski method in Berlin, uh, working with Bertolt Brecht, which involved a lot of improvisation. So he was working very seriously, but he was improvising lines. And uh, this caused a, problem, a little bit of a problem with Boris Karloff. Uh, Boris came to me on the morning of the second day, and he said, Roger, I come here, I come on the set, I'm prepared, I learn all my lines, and then Peter is throwing lines at me that aren't in the script. So I sort of stopped shooting, not for long, for about 10 minutes, and Peter and uh, Vincent and Boris and I all had coffee. And I explained to uh, Boris that Vince, that uh, uh, 
Peter liked to improvise and that he should be a little bit loose and go along with them. And I said to Peter, what you're doing is great. I love it, which I did. But you've got to stay a little closer to the script. <laughs> you fell in love with Poe as a kid, right, Roger? And this is why you had a, you had a lifelong affair with, with his work. Yes, I had. I think I was in junior high school, and I think it was some uh, English class assignment that I read out of the of the House of Usher, and I asked my parents for the complete works of Poe for Christmas. They were delighted. I could have asked for a shotgun or something. They were delighted to give me a book. <laughs> and and I've also heard quotes about you that you were known as the king of the cult film and the Pope of Pop Cinema. Yes, I've been called many things. Pope of Pop Cinema, Pope of Pop Cinema is one of the things I liked the best. There are other things we will not repeat here that <laughs> I didn't like so much. <laughs> Tell us about, a little bit about working with Basil Rathbone, too, in Tales of Terror, one of my favorites. Oh, yes. Basil Rathbone uh, had been a major star. He was fairly old at that time, and uh, he was a little bit weak. He was fragile, and he had some difficulty in learning his lines, so I had to be very careful and treat Basil, uh, which I always did with all actors with, with great respect, but I had to uh, be very attentive and sensitive to the fact uh, that he was quite old and uh, couldn't do some of the things uh, that were written in the script. But he was very good. He was a, a brilliant actor. And I heard Nicholson was thrilled to be working with Laurie Karloff and, and Rathbone and Price. Yes, because he was just getting started. He, people were just beginning to recognize him as an actor. And uh, uh, they liked him because they recognized that he was a good young actor. And uh, he learned a lot working with them. They went out of their way, uh, particularly Vincent, uh, to help him and to give him advice. We have to talk a little bit, Roger, about the terror. <laughs> Which is a favorite of Gilbert's and mine, and we were watching the, the, the wonderful documentary about you. Uh, and, of course, Jack Nicholson is, is, is talking about how the film out defy, he defies anyone to understand the plot. Yeah, I heard the writers didn't understand. <laughs> well, what happened was this. The picture was only made uh, because it rained on a Sunday when I had planned to play tennis. And I was sitting around my house, and I had nothing to do. So I called Leo Gordon, and I had a week still to go to shoot, uh, to shoot the Raven. And I thought, what I can do, I can write... Um, uh, come up, I uh, uh, came up with Leo with a storyline for the terror on Sunday, and I said to him, write around, around I think thirty pages or so during this week, and I'll come back on Monday, Tuesday of the next week, and shoot those thirty pages in two days because that's all the money I had, and then I'll stop and you can write the rest of the script and. Uh, I'll shoot the rest of the picture, which is what we did, and it starred Boris Karloff and uh, Jack Nicholson, and uh, Boris shot the two days, and that was all he was in in the picture, and I said to Jack, you, it'll be you and Boris for two days, but for the rest of the picture, it's just going to be you and some other actors, and you will be the star of the picture. Now, I was signed with the various guilds, and... Um, 
I didn't have the money to direct the rest of the picture myself, and I shot on now and then when I had a little money. So my ace assistant, Francis Coppola, shot a couple of days, and then he got a job, at, I think, at Warner Brothers. And then a month or so later, I had a little more money, and Monty Hellman shot some of it. Wow. Uh, Jack Hill, I, finally the last day of shooting, Jack Jack Nicholson came to me and said, Raj, every idiot in town has directed part of this film. Let me direct the last day. <laughs> so I said, okay, Jack, you might as well direct the last day. The problem was... Every director had a different interpretation of the script, and when we cut it all together, it did not necessarily make sense. But by that time, I was shooting another pole picture, and I had a set. So I kept the crew for an hour late one night, and I brought in Jack and Dick Miller, and I had Jack throw Dick up against the wall of this new castle and say, I've been lied to ever since I've come to this castle. Now tell me what's really been going on. At which point Dick explains all of this stuff that didn't make any sense at all. But he wrote enough so that it almost made sense. Weirdly enough, some critics have really tried to examine and work out the themes that are in the script. That, that scene of Dick Miller explaining the movie... Is is one of the most strained and ridiculous. <laughs> it's it, it like goes on for like an hour and a half. It feels like. <laughs> yes, so the thing goes on and on with all all these weird things, and actually, it we ended up. Uh, in which uh, Boris Karloff played the Baron von Lepp, who owned the castle that Jack came to. And the picture actually seemed a little bit dull to me by the time. Not only did it not make much sense, it seemed a little dull when it was over. So I made, I made up a whole subplot, and I shot, I think, one scene to fit it, in which he was not the Baron von Lepp. He was an imposter who had killed the Baron von Lepp and <laughs> Taking this place to give us a surprise ending, and and just just so we can repeat, so I can make sure I have this right. The only reason this movie got made is because you wanted to play golf that day. Tennis and and what tennis? Tennis. You wanted yeah. to play tennis, right? And it rained, exactly. so you figured, ah, I'll make a movie, right? <laughs> Movies have been made for stranger reasons than that. <laughs> and, and speaking of the Nicholson pictures, little we have to mention Little Shop of Horrors, Roger. It was an original story. What had happened, I had noticed that in some of my horror films, after the audience would scream at the horror scenes, there would be a little bit of laughter. And I wondered, why are they laughing? Uh, I thought that scene worked pretty well. Everybody screamed. And I thought, you know, there's something between horror and laughter, and the laughter is a little bit of a relief from the shock of the horror. So Little Shop of Horrors I made as a sort of a joking experiment. As I say, we shot it in two days, actually two days and a night, in which I put together comedy and horror to see if they w would work. And the film sort of became a cult film that 
kept playing year after year midnight screenings and on college campuses and so forth. Then it became a Broadway musical, and uh, the thing still still keeps going after all these years. It had to make you laugh when it became a Broadway musical. Yeah, that uh, that that surprised me a little bit. Uh, uh, I probably should have. I got a little percentage of the profits. I probably should have negotiated uh, <laughs> harder on that one. But I I was still thinking of it more as a joke than anything else. And one of your quotes in making a science fiction film <laughs> is that the monster should be bigger than the leading lady. Yes, and that came that came from my engineering background. I did a picture called let me see what was the title. It conquered the world, and the monster had come from one of those giant planets out in the uh, far reaches of the solar system, Jupiter or uh, something like that, Saturn. And from my uh, studies in physics, I knew that a giant planet would have very heavy gravity. And a giraffe, for instance, could not exist on a planet like that because it couldn't stand against the power of the gravity. Anything living would be more like a turtle uh, built low to the ground to withstand the gravity. So I had this creature built that, you know, I was trying to be... uh, uh, accurate from the standpoint of physics and being physically correct. So I had this low uh, creature there, Beverly Garland, who was a leading lady, who was very hip and very funny. Uh, the morning of shooting, uh, I was having coffee, and uh, she walked over to the creature, and she knew I was looking at her, and she looked down at it and kicked it and said, so you've come to conquer the world, eh? Take that. And she <laughs> kicked it again. And I immediately knew I was right from a standpoint of physics, but from a standpoint of psychology, I was wrong. The monster had to be bigger <laughs> than Beverly. <laughs> and so this is the most thought, it sounds like, that you ever put into a movie. Say that again. I'm sorry. This, didn't this sounds like the most thought that you ever put into a movie. Well, I always try within the budgets, you know, to do what I, I could. I figured I'm limited by the size of the budget and the shortness of the shooting schedule, but I'm not limited by my imagination or what I can could come up with. So I always worked very hard on the scripts to try to do as well as I could. Now, can you describe, because I can't, can you describe what that monster looked like? It was very strange, and (laughs) models had been made of it for this reason. I said um, to Chuck Hanawalt, the key grip, and Dick Rubin, um, the uh, head prop man, um, I want you to take this creature. I was going to shoot it right away, but I'll wait until after lunch. I want this thing built up to 10 or 12 feet tall. So what it was, the the mouth and the eyes were all very low because that was the way the creature had been designed, and they didn't have time to rebuild that. So they built sort of a towering head above the eyes, and it looked very, I will say, it looked a little strange. So it was like, I remember it having like a tiny face 
and a giant head around it. That would fit exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you tried to make a more meaningful film at one time than the the creature from the ocean floor and Beast with a Million Eyes. And you did a movie starring William Shatner. Yes. It was Bill Shatner's first film. He'd come out from New York where he'd been... um, not necessarily a star, but a successful actor on Broadway. And I did The Intruder, which was about racial integration in the South. Um, or this was in 1960 when schools were in the South were being integrated. Uh, the picture got went, went to a couple of film festivals, won a couple of minor film festivals, and got great reviews. I remember, give me just a second, one of the New York papers said, the Intruder is a major credit to the entire American film industry. It was the first film I ever made that lost money. Uh, I felt I was too serious with that film. It was nice to win a couple of prizes at festivals and get the good reviews, but uh, I felt I'm not here to lose money on the films. So I went back a little bit to what I'd been doing before. Now, I heard in a last-ditch attempt to get people in to see the movie, it changed the title. Yes, uh, there was a drive-in owner in the South who was a friend of mine who said he could put, because the film had a Southern background, I don't remember the title. He put some uh, exploitation title. I think the title that it got re-released as, is I Hate Your Guts. That's right. That, that's, what it, that's what it was. And the film did a little business in the drive-in, but uh, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't enough to break even. Weirdly enough, I uh, shot the picture in 1960, lost money, but when Bill, Bill Shatner and I did a narration, and we sent it out on a DVD in, I think, 2002 or three or something like that, with the DVD release in uh, the year 2003 something, we finally got our money back. Now, I, I heard it was really dangerous shooting that film down south. Yes, we had death threats. Uh, we were run out of several towns by the police. Um, it was a very difficult uh, film to shoot. The was final that- sequence, uh, we were shooting um, uh, in southern Missouri. I wanted to be, I, for some reason, I felt if I was in Missouri, a Midwestern state, I would have some safety. But if I was what they call the boot heel of Missouri, down by the, the Mississippi River, I would have southern accents because there are mostly local people playing uh, the townspeople, and I'd have the look of the South. It turned out I did have the look of the South, but unfortunately I had the, uh, the feeling of the South, and that uh, we had a very tough Ku Klux Klan scene, which was the final scene of the picture, and we'd already been threatened uh, that people said they were going to kill us. Um, We shot that scene. It was a scene at night. We were staying at a motel. We packed our bags from the motel, shot that scene, and when I said, print it for the last shot, we just jumped in our cars and didn't go back to the motel. We drove straight to St. Louis. Were you trying to keep the locals and the and the police from finding out what the picture was about, what your intentions were, Roger? 
We let them know roughly what it was. We rewrote a few scenes in the in the picture to sort of tone them down a little bit. So people knew what the picture was about, but they didn't know quite how tough it was. Now, I, I actually uh, remember meeting you when your book came out, How I Made a Hundred Movies and Never Lost a Dime. And... Right right after I got that book, somehow I was at an event and ran into you, and I said, oh, I just got your book. I haven't read it now. And you said to me, I'm just glad you bought the book. I don't give a damn whether you read it or not. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It would have been nice to read it, but uh, it was even nicer to pay the money for the book. <laughs> This is why you're my hero. <laughs> Roger, speaking of dangerous shoots, well, I just want to go back to Wild Angels for a second. You hired actual Hell's Angels. Yes, we were working with the Angels, uh, playing uh, playing themselves uh, in in the gang. They actually they threatened to kill me. Uh, I remember what happened. They uh, first. But the picture was a giant success. Nobody realized that in any way that it was going to make as much money as it did. I was told that up until that time, it was the most successful low-budget picture ever made. The record was broken a couple of years later by Easy Rider. But at any rate, it was a huge success. And they announced that they were suing me for a million dollars on the basis that I had played them as, uh, portrayed them as an outlaw. A motorcycle gang, whereas in reality um, they were a social group dedicated to the spreading of technical information about motorcycles. Now that that got a lot of publicity, uh, that statement, and then they announced and they got a lot of publicity that they were going to kill me. And the leader of the Angels called me. I remember, I remember almost word for word in this picture. This was in the early 1960s, and I still remember it. He said, "Hey, man, we're going to snuff you out." And I said, "Look, Otto, uh, you've already announced that uh, you're going to kill me. Now, if I slip and fall in the bathtub, the police are going to come after you because you've already stated you're going to kill me." On the other hand. You're also suing me for a million dollars. How do you expect to collect the million dollars if you kill me? <laughs> My advice to you is forget the momentary pleasure of snuffing me out and go for the million dollars. He said, yeah, man, that's right. That makes sense. That's what we're going to do. Wonderful. <laughs> Uh, so, someone else, you, we're going to go through uh, some of the directors and some of the people who uh, you gave a start to, uh, uh, Roger, but Peter Bogdanovich, is it, is it true the first, the Bogdanovich film that, that, that he directed for you had no dialogue and was added later? No, it, well, it wasn't that. It was, um, I had uh, bought a couple of Russian science fiction films because uh uh, science fiction was very popular in Russia at that time, and they were making re really big, elaborate science fiction films. And he shot a couple of additional scenes uh, to tie the picture together. And we tried to, uh, 
to pretend that uh, since I didn't want to pay for sound, uh, that the uh, actors used mental telepathy. But when I saw how it work, worked out, I said, we better put some dialogue in here. <laughs> and I, I heard that uh, you, you actually got Ron Howard. You wanted him to star in a film, and he wanted to direct. Yes. And what happened was um, we did this a car crash picture called Eat My Dust, and um, he starred in it, and he had a percentage of the profits. And again, it was uh, some of these films really made a lot of money. And uh, mon- Monday morning, because it opened on Friday, and we already knew Friday night because we got the grosses uh, the first night that we had a success. But Monday morning, we were sort of calculating everything and booking new theaters and everything. And uh, um, I called him and I said, Ron, I want you to know you're going to do very well with this picture. This is a big success. And he said, I already know that. I checked myself and I've been waiting for your call. I want to come in and talk to you. I said, come on in, Ron. And he came in and he said, whenever an actor stars in a picture and it's a big success and they want him for a sequel and I assume you want a sequel uh, he asked for more money I will not ask for more money I'll do the picture for the same salary and the same profit percentage and I'll do one other job for nothing and I said what is that he said I'll direct the picture and I said Ron you always look like a director to me and he directed the picture it was his first picture. He starred in and directed it, and that was Grand Theft Auto, uh, which was a big success for us. And just like Fast and the Furious, I collected twice on that because a video game company stole the title sure. and made a lot of money with Grand Theft Auto, and I sued him and collected. <laughs> but Grand Theft Auto uh, made money for me twice. Now, I heard at one point... Uh, Ron Howard started complaining to you about that there wasn't enough money on the picture and not enough extras. Yes, that's true. There was one scene uh, at um, a a demolition derby, and he wanted a bigger crowd. And I said, this is all the money I got. And I remember I I said, I'm trying to think, this is so long ago. Um, I said, Ron... If you do a good job on this picture, you will never work for me again. <laughs> Great story. <laughs> so, so the best thing you can offer him was to never work on another Roger Corman <laughs> No, we've been uh, good friends. As a matter of fact, uh, there's a possibility that um, we may remake Eat My Dust on a bigger budget. And he will produce it. He That's won't great. direct it, but he'll produce. He and I will co-produce it. Now, you made some films recently for the for the Sci-Fi Channel. Yes. Can you give us some of those titles? Well, it started off when let me see. I uh, I did a science fiction picture about. Um, Recreating a, the DNA of a dino, of, of a crocodile, and I called it Dinocroc. And the Sci-Fi Channel heard about it, and they called me. This was Tom Vitale, who was the head of the Sci-Fi Channel. Said he'd heard about it, he'd like to see it because they might be interested in buying it, and he did, and he bought it. 
and it did very well, so he asked for more, and I did a number of them. Each picture seemed to get a crazier and crazier title. We went through Super Gator, um, Dino Shark, uh, <laughs> Piranaconda, and finally they called me one time, and they said, Roger, you've come up with the titles on every film. This time, we've got a title. And I said, what is it? And they said, Sharktopus, do you want to make it? And I said, no. And I said, why don't you want to make it? And I said, which I actually believed, I said, you can go up to a certain level of insanity with these titles and the audience is with you. But if you go over what I might call the acceptable level of insanity, the audience turns against you. And I think Sharktopus is uh, above the acceptable level of insanity. One thing led to another. I made the picture highest rating of the year for the sci-fi channel. So we then, we then made a second Sharktopus film, and that got a giant rating, and we're now in the process of making a third one. Was that Sharktopus uh, versus Terracuda? That was it, Sharktopus versus <laughs> Terracuda. Came out, came out this summer. We're trying to it. think of another creature. We haven't yet come up with a title yet. Now, I also heard that back then, guys like you and Sam Arkoff would have a title first, and whichever title worked the best, you'd write a movie around it. Uh, yes, we occasionally, not often. Generally, we had an idea for the picture and came up with a title. But every now and then, that's true. We did have a title, and um, we uh, wrote the picture around the title. <laughs> Roger, let's talk about your relationships with some of the uh, some of the people you started uh, in the business. Joe Dante, Bogdanovich, we mentioned. We have to mention Martin Scorsese. And is it true that you approached Martin? Martin Scorsese came to you with Mean Streets, and you said you could make it, but only as a black exploitation picture. Uh, it's partially true. Uh, he had uh, directed his first Hollywood picture for me, a picture called Boxcar sure, Bertha, sure. Uh, which was a very good picture. And he had this picture uh, 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 that he wanted to make that he had written himself called Main Streets. And uh, he asked if I would finance it. And I said, well, I don't really have enough money, but um, if this were a black film, I think I could raise the money. And he said, and he was right, he said, uh, it can't be because black films were very popular at that time. And he said, you know, it's really written with an Italian. It's based upon, in part, my youth in the Italian neighborhood of New York. It has to be an Italian film. Here's one I have to ask you. On one of your films, uh, you would have the cameraman chase after fire trucks and ambulances that just happened to be going by. Yes, we didn't chase after them, but we photographed them and um, used them because I knew uh, that kind of uh, footage could be used um, in action films, and we did do that. I just want to ask you quickly, Roger, too, about some of the the acting work that you did for your protégés. I mean, audiences might uh, know you from Godfather 2. You're one of the, the, the senators that's grilling Michael Corleone. You're I in knew the he howling. was a bad guy as soon as he walked in the room. You did. <laughs> you're in The Howling. You're in Apollo 13, Silence of the Lambs, Philadelphia. 
you have any fond memories of of, uh, of these acting parts? Yes, I do, because they were all done uh, for directors who were friends of mine. There were always two or three day roles. Uh, uh, I didn't have the time for a longer role, and I think they thought I didn't have the ability to carry a longer role. So it was just sort of getting together and having fun. I just have good memories of the whole thing. And and how did you feel about getting that honorary Oscar a couple of years ago? Because Demi and, and Joe Dante and Tarantino and Peter Fonda and so many of your friends came out to salute you. It must have been very moving. I was very pleased. I'd gotten a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame uh, a few years earlier, which I thought was fine, but I never expected to get an Academy Award. I was really surprised. Uh, These these were the um, Lifetime Achievement Awards, which are given at the Governor's Ball. So you're not surprised at the time. You're told you're going to get one. And uh, I remember they called me uh, uh, after a meeting of the Board of Directors of the Academy and said they had just voted to, to give me uh, an Academy Award. That truly surprised me. I, I never expected uh, to get that. Well, th- this is one of those interviews that I wish could go on for like another month. So many things I want to talk to you about. In, well, include- maybe we can do it again. Oh, I'd love to. And I, I, I remember hearing a quote Scorsese said in your films, there was no need for taste. <laughs> what, what is what is Art School of Horrors about, real quickly? That's a low-budget film I did with the uh, 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 San Francisco uh, Art University. Uh, they gave me one of those honorary PhDs, mm-hmm. and I looked at some of the work done by the students, and I thought, you know, this is really quite good. And I talked to Diane Baker, who's the head of the school, and I said, if I gave the students a little money um, for their senior project, would they like to make a feature film? And uh, she talked to the students, and they said yes, and she agreed. So they made this little film. We took the title slightly from Little Shop of Horrors, Mm -hmm. from Art School of Horrors. And it's a horror film with comedy and shot in an art school. So they were able to just shoot it in their own school, and they didn't have to spend any money on sets. Wonderful. It's almost like a little callback to Bucket of Blood. Right. And, oh, you know, and I'm, I'm going to wrap up in a second. Your movie, The Last Woman on Earth. Oh, yes. Was that the one with Robert Town playing, uh, writing and, and acting? Yes. He, he wrote the picture, and we were to shoot two pictures in Puerto Rico. And he hadn't finished the script. And uh, I didn't have very much money, and I knew he was a good actor. He had been to the same acting class that Jack Nicholson and I were in. So I said, uh, you've got to come to Puerto Rico, and while I'm shooting the first picture, you have to finish shooting this script, and since I don't have any money in the budget, you're going to play the young leading man uh, and write the script. And and this was a movie where uh, everyone died because the oxygen was sucked <laughs> out a, of the earth. atomic bomb, right? And, and then these scuba divers who weren't around for that... Uh, popped their heads up just as the oxygen came back. That's right. I love that, <laughs> I love that picture. And one story, I'm sorry, i got to ask you, and then we'll wrap up. When Dick Miller first came to you, he said he wanted to be a writer. 
And and I heard you said, I don't need any writers, I need actors. Yes, uh, and he was a good actor, and he played, uh, he actually did write one script for me at a later date, but he did, I don't know, must be 20, 30 films we've done together over the years. And I heard he said you cast him as an Indian, and in the same movie, cast him as a cowboy, and he wound up shooting himself. Yes, in the because movie. we had the Indians shoot, fighting against the cowboys. I didn't have very very many extras, so I put him in the front. I think as a cowboy, and then when I reversed the camera and photographed the Indians, I put him in the back, uh, dressed as an Indian. <laughs> Nobody ever noticed that it was the same guy. Fantastic. <laughs> My hero, Roger Corman. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with the great, legendary Roger Corman, a man who makes Ed Wood films look positively high-tech. <laughs> Roger, thanks for doing this. We really appreciate it. Very good. I've had a good time, and I thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks. Very good. Good night. Cards Against Humanity. This episode is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity's 10 Days, or whatever of Kwanzaa. You give Cards Against Humanity $15, and they'll send you... 10 mystery gifts for the 10 days or whatever of Kwanzaa. Space is limited to the first 250,000 people who sign up at HolidayBullshit.com. If you like listening to comedy, try watching it. On the internet. The folks behind the Sideshow Network have launched a new YouTube channel called Wait For It. It's got interviews with comedians like Reggie Watts, Todd Glass, Liza Schleichinger, Schleichinger. I've been friends with her for 10 years. One of the funniest people out there, and I still have a hard time with the last name, Liza. Our very own Owen Benjamin, that's me, takes you on a musical journey down internet rabbit holes and much more. You don't have to wait any longer. Just go to youtube.com slash wait for it comedy. There's no need to wait for it anymore. Because it's here. And it's funny. And I love you. A few days ago, Brooke Tudine posted an inspirational quote on her wall that got 17 likes and three comments. Thumbs up, Brooke. Geico also wants to make a comment. In just 15 minutes, you could save hundreds of dollars on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And nothing says inspiration better than saving money. Well, except for those posters that say things like teamwork, excellence, and make it happen. Hashtag keep climbing. Hashtag savings. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.